0: You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and it was so great last episode. And if you haven't had a chance to listen, would urge you to go back uh, where I provided sort of an overview of the state of the race. Uh, Sort of typically, each episode provides a sort of window into the campaign, and we talk about sort of the latest that has happened on the campaign trail. Uh, I thought it was important to step back and kind of put everything all together and provide an overall snapshot of the race, Uh, and now we're ready to dive back in. We have an excellent guest this weekend, and maybe my favorite conversation that, that we've done on this podcast. Uh, and it's with Darren Sands, the outstanding reporter from BuzzFeed. I'll tell you a little bit more about him. You'll get to learn quite a bit about him uh, as we get to the interview. Uh, and actually, during our interview, we were able to touch on quite a bit of the major developments in the race. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, uh, there was a, a shakeup on Kamala Harris's campaign. We talked about uh, the campaign team forming around Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, uh, the differences between the two candidates, uh, but also the, the similarities, uh, we talked about, um, we talked about quite a bit that's happened over the last several weeks. And so I'm not going to do a big wind up on this episode because the interview is so rich. Uh, there have been a couple major developments that we didn't touch on in the interview that I do want to raise. Uh, number 1 is that we've seen Elizabeth Warren solidify herself as uh really running neck and neck with Joe Biden. There are uh, now a series of national polls that show her uh ahead of uh Biden and in first place uh, and that's sort of echoed and, and uh uh joined by some state polls that show uh the same now Biden's still polling above 20 in just about every national poll. Some polls like the Morning Consult poll has the race looking different with Biden at around 32 and Warren a little bit further behind, but we can say now that given where polling is uh Elizabeth Warren is uh really uh, definitely in second place and and I think they're they're probably running neck and neck. Uh I say that if it was just the national uh sort of polls, uh, I'd be uh, or just the state, I, I'd be a little more skeptical and give Biden the benefit of the doubt. The fact that you see both national and state polls sort of reflecting this is a real good indication that Warren isn't just uh sort of. Uh, reaping the benefits of a strong ground game in New Hampshire, uh, or, you know, reaping the benefits of positive press on the national level. Really, a lot of things are working in her, uh, in her favor. That said, uh, Warren, by virtue of not attacking any of the candidates, we've talked about this and how strategic this has been for her to stay out of the fray. And I think she has a profile where, it's going to be difficult for fellow Democrats to attack her. Now, Republicans will always be able to attack her, socialists, whatever. For Democrats, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, how folks try and ding ding her up a little bit. Because so far, she's been unscathed. And so I say that, A, to be on the lookout for, you know, now she's, she's going to be in the spotlight uh, on October 15th. Uh, at the debate, um, b- but it's also um, I'd be skeptical of her numbers right now. L- let's see her take some incoming for a-, a-, a little bit and see if her numbers hold, um, uh, because she just hasn't hasn't faced faced much criticism from within the party yet. Uh, so, so that's going to be important to see. Uh, we mentioned the Harris. Uh, staff shake up and she's you know her campaign's trying to find itself <laughs> they're trying to find out as you know uh, interestingly before there was a whole bunch of reporting on this we mentioned this on the podcast uh, uh on the last episode that Harris's campaign unlike Warren's um it seems like Harris's campaign is trying to figure out who Harris is and now there's a staff shakeup. So apparently Harris wasn't too pleased with how her own campaign was sort of reading her. And so it's going to be interesting to see, uh, if the campaign shakeup allows Harris to sort of reset, deliver a coherent, consistent message about who she is, why she's running, uh, her vision for the country in a way that makes sense. Uh, So that'll be a key element to watch. All right. When we get back from the break, I'm going to introduce our guest. uh, I'm excited for you all to listen to our conversation. Hey, this is The Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am excited to introduce you Darren Sands of uh, BuzzFeed. He's a political reporter for BuzzFeed. Uh, he, he's an incredible reporter. In political journalism, uh, you, you see reporters who distinguish themselves in cycles in a way that really set themselves up for the rest of their careers you know, McKay Coppins in 2012 was one of those reporters where he was, he performed so well that you're like, you know, this guy's going to have a long career and is, is, is seems to be right on top of it. Uh, even ahead of the curve for me, Darren was that reporter in 2016, just completely ahead of the curve. He was naming things that would emerge to be critical, you know, uh, uh, b- before anyone else saw them, uh, he there was no a reporter who was more astute covering b- both the grass tops and sort of the elite black organizations how they were navigating 2016, uh, sort of as they neared the end of the Obama era and you know looked to an election between two white you know baby boomer uh, presidents. Uh, but then also the grassroots, and Darren is someone who actually did real on the ground reporting. So I, I, I've just had the greatest respect for him since, uh, since 2016. Uh, him. Where I, uh, since then I've just been following his his work really closely. And now we're in the midst of a new cycle, and Darren's been doing incredible work in this one as well. I, I'd especially point you to his profile on uh, Cory Booker. Uh, uh that that came out uh, at the beginning of September uh, he has some interesting reporting that will be coming out in the next several weeks and Darren's really a reporter who a lot of his pieces are looking through the prism of uh, the idea that um, black voters have a spiritual a more spiritual, approach to politics um, than the average American voter. Uh, and that is something that infuses all of his reporting. So you'll have him picking up on threads and sort of ha- how the spiritual affects the political. And he has an antenna for that that is, A, important because it's true. <laughs> like it's actually, it, it actually has an impact. Um, but then second... Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's part of what distinguishes, uh, his work. And it's important to several of the candidates who are running, uh, uh, this, this cycle. And we get into that in the interview. All right, folks, without further ado, uh, I'm so excited to, uh, uh, to be able to, uh, allow you to listen in on this conversation with Darren Sands of BuzzFeed. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am so excited to have Darren Sands with us. Uh, Darren, thanks for joining.
1: Hey, Michael. No problem. I appreciate you uh, having me on.
0: Yeah. I I mean, Darren, you've been one of my favorite reporters for a long time. And just following sort of political journalism, it seems like the best reporters are really made in a cycle. And 2016 was for me the cycle where you just dominated it just seemed like every story that needed to be uh that 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 uh was breaking you were at the center of it you seemed to be right on top of what was happening uh, particularly among African-American voters in the Democratic primary. Uh, and I just uh, I've been following your, your work really closely uh, since then. And now, you know, we're in a new presidential cycle yeah. and, and on top of it again. And we have a lot to a lot to discuss. Uh, so, again, thank, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, me.
1: I appreciate those uh, very, very kind words. So
0: there's much I want to sort of ask you about. I guess I'll just open it with, you know, as you look at how black voters are navigating this Democratic primary, uh, particularly the Black Church, what are some of the main themes that you see uh you see emerging that might be different from previous cycles? Uh how how is the Black Church navigating this primary where where many more candidates running than in, than in 2016?
1: Yeah. Um you know, I think that The interesting thing about that is that in 2016, 2015, obviously, was a... uh, 2014, 2015, there were years that the Black Lives Matter movement exploded. And I think for the first time, probably, it was a movement that hadn't come out of the Black church. Mm. But it was definitely, like, part of the 20 the the 2016 cycle in various different ways you obviously had you know Hillary Clinton for instance being confronted on her record in public um you know the at netroots um i think it was in 15 uh you know there were activists confronting candidates on the stage and they it defined the race in a way that I think we still haven't fully understood. Um, So when she loses the election, I think when you started to look at some of the numbers in terms of where people were voting and where they weren't and the states that she lost, there was a conversation sort of percolating about what role the Black church had in the election. And what happened was that when I talk to church leaders and folks like that, there was a sense of comfort after, you know, Obama was elected, mm. um, you know, the church prides itself at large, uh, see uh, you know, the political people in church will say that we need, we, we need to always be vigilant. Right. There's a sense of vigilance about, you know, black rights, black civil rights being protected at all times. And one of the effects I think of, the Obama presidency was that there were people who were thinking, well, I think the dream has been realized here. Hmm. And, you know, Barack Obama would say that, you know, these things sort of happen and and they ebb and they flow. Right. That's true. I think the black church and and leadership, clergy, what have you are figuring out how to be vigilant again. Um, And I think that's really the biggest thing. And, in the Black church at large, I think there's always going to be a conversation about how political the church should be, yeah. um, and people just always disagree on that. But I think one um, sort of example of that in particular is in, in 2016, when the Dallas shootings happened and and, and those police shootings happened um uh, After the protests there, the AME uh, quadrennial convention happened in Philadelphia, where obviously Hillary was nominated, um, you know, later that summer. But there was public, there was a very public uh, hashing out of what to do. There were young people who wanted to protest in the street. There was a, a bishop whose name escapes me right now, but he gave sort of the main address of this thing. And he had this line where he's essentially saying, we need to go back to the basics of teaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to sort of do this again. That's how we're going to rise to prominence and, and right. again. And um, Hillary spoke, and she was pushing this message like, hey, like, let's be political again. <laughs> you yeah. know, um I- And so uh, I think that that's sort of the tension point. That's the dynamic and that's where we are. And there are leaders out there um, who are sort of emerging in this new space to erase some of the wrongs that they feel like happened in 2016, which is basically that there wasn't enough turnout for the Democratic candidate.
0: Yeah. And now, so we've seen uh, Reverend William Barber has been a guest on this podcast. We've seen him have... Uh, he was obviously relevant in 2016. He spoke at the DNC convention, but in this cycle, you see him uh, a little more forceful and, and having sort of a convening power that for a religious leader, you, you know, uh, someone like L. Sharpton aside, you know, is, is pretty unique. Uh, I know you, you've also been following Black Church Pack and what Leah Daughtry and, and Reverend M- Michael McBride are doing. Um, are, are there... First, I'd love to hear you speak to 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 those two efforts, and then are are there any other leaders uh, from the Black Church that stick out to you uh, when it comes to speaking into the Democratic primary in particular?
1: Yeah, well, you know, in 2016, the day of the election, I was in Durham with Reverend Barber, yeah, and they were having issues with voting machines and. of a heavily black area of the city. Yeah. Um, and and they were just getting reports of like low turnout. I remember stopping by a one of the precincts and I asked, you know, what number is that person right there? And it was like a, it was a low number for it to be like two o'clock in the afternoon. Huh. Um, and I, I saw Barber at a press conference and he was just very, 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 I don't want to say distraught, but he. I think he yeah. saw the writing on the wall a little bit, and he was. Yeah. Um, I think what he's doing now, I think, is recognizing that they didn't. I don't know if they didn't have enough. Sort of, I don't know if there was enough done at the time, and I think he knew. Yeah. You know? sure. Like he, I think he just knew. Like from my conversations with him, and and obviously you've had him on, but I just feel like he knew that after that election, that he wasn't going to let it happen again. Yeah, And so I just saw a very serious man. I think what's happening now is that people need to start paying attention to what he's doing because it's been the thing that the democratic party hadn't been able to figure out, which is essentially, how do you bring people together who have common interests? And, and how do I mean, you not make it be a political conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, it's obviously very important work, but it's not work that, like, Democrats can necessarily do.
0: Yeah, that's going to happen, like, out of the DNC. Right,
1: right. right. Um, so I think he's, he's gaining momentum. Like, yeah. he's he's a, I think he's just a genius person. Yeah. Um
0: literally and, he, macarthur a genius uh, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah <laughs> i mean he's just got a brilliant mind um and a, a heart for not just people but for unity yeah um and so he's a very unique leader in that respect i think black church pack in that same vein um they understand politics right and spe- especially Leah uh yeah. Doctuary, yeah. Um, obviously the, the daughter of, um, uh, you know, a, a pastor in her own right, but also the, the, the daughter of one of the heroes on uh, in, in civil rights and matters yeah. of, uh, religion and, and so forth and so on. So I think it's been a struggle in part because so much in politics requires that you raise you know, gobs and gobs of money. Yeah. And I think that, in recent years has been where churches in particular have been a little bit wary about how to enter, you know, how do you drive people to the polls? um, You know, and how do you create turnout? How do you do all of these things? How do you create momentum within the church when, you know, lots of people's gripes are, well, none of these people really come around until election time. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that like that type of organizing is probably long overdue. And I think what the Democratic Party needs to realize is that they need to be making those investments at the grassroots. But it it all, again, really kind of goes back to having to remember what it was like in 2015 and 2016 in terms of how difficult it was to convince a mass of black people that hillary clinton's in danger you yeah. know i mean no yeah. one no one i would go to churches and they and they would say you know this is going to be a cakewalk yeah and yeah. i think there's a lot of, just a lot of people shocked and it changed the urgency i think of still a lot of folks yeah
0: now on the campaign side uh Are there campaigns that have impressed you so far or that you think are making significant investment uh, in South Carolina, but also, you know, uh, across the country and other sort of Super Tuesday and earlier, you know, primary states? Or do you think that there is a lot of work left to be done in order to be ready for February?
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of work being done. You know, I I think part of what's happening now in South Carolina is you're hearing, in particular South Carolina in particular is to start there is um you're hearing a lot of people start to put in place organizing and basically publicizing that there's going to there's an election here right <laughs> you know what i mean like it's kind of like a simple thing to say but um for for the people that they need to turn out in order to win in, in a general election Those are the folks that work in fast food or they're in between jobs or they're just trying to take care of grandma. And and, and you, you sort of learn when you knock on doors that a lot of people don't feel that right policy and the Democratic Party position and things like that. Or, you know, the fact that Trump called the Ukrainian president to basically try and get dirt on as one of his political opponent's kids. It's like that doesn't affect people's everyday lives. Right. And I think that part of what's happening at the grassroots level is that they are beginning to articulate um, a, a pitch to these voters that these things do matter. Um, and and it's a different way that you have to message uh, that. But, You know, it's happening. I think um, from a candidate perspective, I think Liz Warren in particular is someone that Democrats have to, or her opponents who want to win that state need to be paying attention to. And I think that from my conversations with voters, it's about her sort of style as a teacher. It sounds like a sermon. You know what I mean? Like she sounds like she's giving... A presentation in a simple way that's got a message about uh, it's got a vision yeah. for the future, and it's about hope. Yeah. You know, Sharpton once told me he was like, as a black preacher, every day you're thinking about how you're going to get these people to the next that's Sunday. Right. Yeah, and that's just selling hope, um, making sure they're hopeful, making sure they're that whatever the vision is that they are part of it, that they're important, that um, they're going to be okay. And I think that she gave one address in South Carolina that had people coming out saying, well, I really like her. And I've I've spoken to people that I just know who've been like, you know, black women, older, middle-aged. Like, I think I, you know, I like what she's saying. Uh, And I really do think a lot of that is just connected to her ability to, She obviously she's she's a teacher, right? And she says like I've never wanted to, I've never thought I want to be president. I was happy being a teacher, but when she starts to get into that lesson, people perk up, and and uh, that's definitely something that has been like, that's something that like comes out of the black church. Um, I I think
0: she's been, I, I think she's underestimated on the faith front generally. I think that there is like a, a, a core, her entire career has been sort of values driven and deeply rooted in sort of the idea that, you know, a family should be economically supported uh, uh, in a way that's not atomized, you know, like she doesn't, she, she seems to understand the importance of community and family in a way that some of the other candidates, it's just not as much of a part of their economic message. And like you said, you just hear her talk and you go, this is someone who knows why they're running for president, (laughs) you know, and this is, this is someone who, who isn't concocting their, their, their reason as they go along. This is someone who has a vision for, uh, for American public policy and American life. Uh, another candidate, uh, Darren, that, uh, Unlike Warren, I mean, Warren has popped. You know, she's she's leading in a bunch of the national polls now, leading in some of the states. A candidate who is yet to pop, but the, I've been saying on this podcast, uh, it might be my most failed. It might turn out to be my most failed prediction uh, in the history of this podcast. But I'm still holding on to it, which is I still expect Cory Booker to have a moment and to see a rise in the polls, but we haven't seen that yet. And you wrote a really incredible article. About that, could you delve into that a bit and what you learned about Booker's campaign through that process?
1: Yeah, it's so much. I'm gonna, I'll try to make this as quick as possible, but I, I thought it was such an interesting thing. You know, he brought me to Newark. He brought lots of reporters to Newark to um, come and walk this, you know, the streets of his neighborhood and see different things, yeah. and uh, it was a very interesting thing. But the, you know, the narrative about Cory Booker was somehow that he had saved Newark. Right. right. And that, like, it wasn't, that wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> and Newark has problems that are as deep seated as they were a generation ago. Um, not to say that there haven't been improvements, but they have. But basically I think Corey took me to Newark to show me that Newark saved him. Huh. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I just thought that that was such a reference mm. point for me in terms of how the civil rights movement uh, and this is what he says a lot too, They what they tried to give the next generation, which is, you know, his his parents were, you know, involved in the sit-ins and march and such and things like that. And he talks about that, but they really did try to impart to their young people that you have a debt to pay. Like you have to be in the fight. This is the thing. I have a next door neighbor who um, talks about that, you know, who was involved you know, with the sit-ins and things like that. And they really tried to impart that that was the most noble thing that you could be a part mm-hmm. of is a struggle for equality. And so he's kind of taken that um with this idea that the people of Newark saved him and tried to create a campaign that was about sort of, you know, quote to use the Biden phrase, sort of to, you know, redeem the soul of right. America. And I think that his understanding of the faith community, his ability really just to give a really good sermon in particular, and also just his understanding of one of the key points. And I'm interested in getting your thoughts on this too, because I I tried to really talk about this in a lot of the tweets that I did about the story, but, you know, the black church understood and there were like theologians and people who were talking a lot about this in the, you know, twenties and thirties and so forth and so on. But it was this idea, and this is how King was. This is how Martin Luther King was essentially taught, which is that Jesus has a message for, you know, the quote unquote disinherited, right. which is how Howard Thurman that's, would that's say, exactly right? Right. Like, yep, you know, like the the people who are forgotten about. The people who Trump tried to appeal to successfully, frankly, um, that there is a version of the historical person of Jesus Christ that gives people a, a kind of hope and resilience that um, should galvanize them politically. And I think that's what Corey is trying to continue Um And I'm kind of with you. Like when I talked to his mom for the story, she told me this story and it didn't make the story. So this is, you know, this is for the podcast. (laughs) But, um, you know, she was like, I was like, what are you proudest of with your son? And she said it was back in the days when he was mayor of Newark and he just had to make it happen. He had to do Hmm. something. You know, like he he, so whether it was, you know, these stories, how he would like sleep in a trailer to bring attention to the drug trade that was happening or go on a hunger strike or use. um, What did he do that one time? I think he slept under a. he he went on food stamps or something like that. He lived off of food stamps as a way to bring attention to how difficult it is to do that those were those are like sort of civil rights era tactics and that even now i feel like he's also doing sort of the same things in terms of his campaign so i think he's the most unique campaigner and i'm just of the mind that that sort of um campaigning can't ever really be counted out yeah you know um It's just, it's, it's just unique. And I think it speaks to people in a way that other kinds of campaigning and just won't do. And he just won't, he won't go away, you know, like he's (laughs) good at like staying alive. Um, And I just think that speaks so poignantly to a large part of the, the voting demographic. Now, I don't know how much success he's going to have, but I'm, I don't know. I was curious, like your thoughts on, on that too, in terms of the role of the role that that tradition of the gospel speaking to sort of the disinherited of the earth um, has, is going to have on this whole process. I, I think it's tremendously
0: powerful. Um, so so uh, for, for those who don't know, Darren's referring to, well, quite a bit, but Howard Thurman has a book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that I've lifted up as one of the theological keys to our political moment right now. So would would urge folks to check that out. It influenced King greatly. It sounds like it's influenced Booker. And I did hear a, a bit of Thurman in Booker's talk at Mother Emanuel. And, mm-hmm. and so, uh, so, Darren, I do think that's important. I do think His, not just his history of speaking to and from the black church, but his policy history with the faith community broadly, I think, gives him something that that makes him an acceptable candidate to bridge all the different divides in the Democratic Party in a way that, like, a Buddha Judge or a Beto or even, you know, uh, Harris doesn't necessarily have. a Booker on immigration, on criminal justice reform, on some of the issues that are important to broad swaths of the faith community. Booker kind of engaged them head on. I mean, I can't tell you how many different calls I've been on uh, of Booker sort of intentionally engaging, not just with religious leaders, which is really important, but uh, getting to the grass tops. And so I think that's a, that's a big advantage for him. I have always thought that Booker has a bit of a hurdle with black with sort of the black church voters in, in the sense that he's so ecumenical <laughs> uh, and mm. he's so and, you know, this reporting on him, you know, he'll quote Jesus, but then he'll he'll quote uh, Buddha. He'll quote from the Torah. Right. Uh, and so he's rooted in the black church tradition, but he's also done quite a bit of religious exploring that is. Uh, in some ways admirable buttons but in other ways just makes a i think sometimes a bit of a disconnect um when he's just talking about a whole bunch of different religions <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, so i, I yeah. think that that has been that has been kind of a, a kind of a hurdle for him but I I do think, you know, if we start to see if we get to February and Super Tuesday and there's not a clear nominee and Booker has been able to hang in there, you do get the sense that, again, unlike so many of the other candidates, you could get the sense that Booker would be acceptable to more of the party than just about anybody else. And so um, and and then I just say he has a great team behind him. Uh, His campaign manager is fantastic. To me, a Booker who's on his team is out of this world.
1: He has hired I think Booker and Warren have the best teams from like top to bottom in terms of, and I yeah, hate true. to like you know but like I think they both of them have such good people who understand their candidates and they understand the sort of the moment yeah here as well, and this is a bit of an aside, yeah. but What's most interesting, what tells me that she has
0: a highly functioning campaign and and you you report on this stuff. I don't know anybody who works for Elizabeth Warren. You know, there haven't been any of the puff piece profiles. There hasn't been there hasn't been any news of like a turmoil on her campaign. I mean, she's run like the smoothest, you know, ship that I've seen, which which to me is like a really good sign. <laughs> like she doesn't have a whole bunch of folks yeah. trying to, you know, just leverage off her campaign for their futures. Um uh and so so, so yeah, I don't know if that's been your your but like I she's the one campaign. I don't know who her campaign manager is if I'm going to be honest, you know. <laughs>
1: Right, yeah, I don't think I know either. It's, you know, to me and like we and I just thought about this but the there's there seems to be an interesting parallel between Booker and Warren and to me it's that there were a lot of people like very recently obviously we're dealing with an impeachment but there are a lot of people who were saying like now we've reached the point where we need mm-hmm. to start to do something. And you know, reporting the the Booker story out it was like he immediately had seemed to pivot to this idea that we are, we are in a different time zone now that Trump has been elected. Like this is, we are in a desperate and urgent situation. And it seems like both of their campaigns established uh, an ethos that was not related to what, Like Trump, it's not a reactive thing to Trump. It was more so an understanding that there needs to be a bigger change than we can reasonably conceive of, but we have to think about it. You know what I mean? Like, Corey's been like, he was in New Hampshire and I was with him and someone said, what's your number one issue? And he said, you know, I get this question all the time and and it's. I think it's our. We need. We need to bring back our ability to work together yeah. to bring about change. And was, she was That's expecting right. him to say gun control or say something like that, but just a broad approach to the idea of an election and sort of staking it on that. Um, yeah. Obviously, a risk, and they haven't seen the sort of p- performance in the polls that they've wanted to, but. Um, just the big idea of it. Yeah. Is, uh And, and for one campaign, too, I think it's just very um, it's different. And, yeah, cool. you talks about this.
0: Yeah. Corey talks about this, yeah, talks about this idea. Uh, he calls it civic grace. And I just think that's just so, right. so, so needed. But there, there's also like is is that. You know, I, I'm someone who who thinks those are the kinds of themes that like that's my read on this moment is is, you know, consonant with that. It just it seems like it, it will see if it's a shiny enough object for folks. One more campaign to ask you about. Um, so I really have two more questions for you. And uh, the the first is just um, just to talk about one more campaign. And that's uh, Kamala Harris's campaign. She ha- had seemed like she mm-hmm. had some at least to me. Uh, there was a point where I thought well now you know we have a four person uh you know first tier and that's how it is and then we saw a precipitous decline that is now persistent do you do you think she has she she clearly has been you know raising significant money um so she's not gonna have to drop out for lack of of funds um but do you do you see a pathway back for her or do you think that this is now about sort of positioning herself for a for a future run
1: yeah um i'm not sure if she's positioning herself for a future run you know i think the the reporting that i have done on her um i don't think that black women in particular are like i think they're with her and i mean that might sound you know i don't talk to any black women who dislike her Mm. Um, I think whatever's happening in the polls, I mean, are are they polling black women in Iowa? Like, I don't don't know, (laughs) but at the end of the day, you get to Super Tuesday, you're going to, they're going to get in the voting booth and they're going to make a decision about who to vote for. And that there's going to be a black woman on the ballot. You know what I mean, like again, I don't know that you can necessarily counter out. I just know that the opportunity to vote for a black woman <laughs> on a presidential ballot <laughs> yeah it, like, it doesn't happen all like, the time you know, like, yeah. like I think that like Barack obama's that, that that whole experience was there was a lot of people who were. They were very upset because they felt like they didn't want to vote for him because that they, that he was going to somehow be destroyed, right, right. Yeah. In, in mind or body. And, and that was a very real thing people sort of sometimes, I think, forget about. But it was also, I think, a switch kind of flipped when they when people began to realize, well, we have a, a historic opportunity here. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no amount of polling or... You know, focus groups or whatever that (laughs) is going, it can compare to the power and the meaning of masses of black women who drive the Democratic Party in terms of support and vote the most and are the most loyal. That when they get in that booth, I don't see them uh, choose that one. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. Yeah. Like, um, if, if
0: she, if she, if she gets to Super Tuesday, a legitimate option, then it's hard to imagine uh, her not getting significant support. Among, right. uh, I, I think the, the issue for her is the way things are right now, and you know it's October, so you know, but. Uh, uh, Right now, it's a it's imaginable that she would not finish top two in Iowa, New Hampshire or South Carolina. Uh, uh-huh. And at that point, it, it's how much pressure do her donors put on her to drop out. How, how much uh, sort of just uh, like, is she able to stay in that long, even aside from money, but just the pressure and the party, uh, y- you know, if if we have a, a Biden Bernie sort of. Uh, contest looming or something like that. And I, I think that'll be the real test. Like, can she break into the, the, the top two or finish top three in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina in a way that would justify her, you know, staying until super Tuesday. Uh, I think that's going to be a real challenge, but I mean, she's been to, to me and I've said this on the podcast before, but, but not to you, you know, Looking in a year and a half out from this race, two years out, you know, I looked at what she was doing and thought, you know, this is someone who is the most strategically minded in the field. I mean, just mm-hmm. doing everything right. Um, and you know, we're, we're going to have to see what what that adds up to. Um, that's that's yeah. really helpful insight there.
1: I agree, and 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 the, the the last thing I'd say about that is just that you know she's going through a a process. Of trying to figure out who she is as a candidate, yeah, trying to figure out what her message is. there obviously, there's been a campaign shakeup that's been like well documented. yeah, um at the end of the day, black people in particular, they love you when you've been through something. Hmm. You know what I mean? And like she's reluctant in a way because she talks about this sometimes. she doesn't like to talk about herself, right. And that's just, you know, that's from her mom and their upbringing. Like I was explaining this to uh, another, um, you know, South Asian reporter and he's like, yeah, you're right. Like (laughs) that's how my parents are. They taught me like, you don't talk about yourself. You just go out and do it. And I think people want to hear more from her. Like they want to hear what she really thinks and like how she's felt and what she had to go through. This is not her style, but I think in this campaign, she's going to be able to model if she, if she can stick this, these months out, I think she's going to be able to model that she's tough. She's battle tested and that she will, I think she's going to earn votes based on the idea that it's like, Hey, this this girl's tough. Yeah, she's been through it. Yeah, she's been through, it. and then, I mean, that's how black women tend to think. It's like they want to see if you if you've really um, got if you've got what it takes yeah. uh, to, to last, especially if you're going to you know face Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, sure. All right, Darren. Last question for you, and that is what we had opportunity to talk a little bit before we we start recording. You know, so we're we're talking the day after this the sentencing, and and the verdict in the Botham Jean case, and I just don't know how to pronounce uh, it's Guy, Geiger. I don't know how to pronounce the shooter's name, but um, I wanted to ask you about about that case. You have an interesting sort of a bit of like backstory there, and then you know we've seen several of the uh, many of the 2020 candidates. Uh, uh, react to some of the discussion there. So I just wanted to close out with, um, with with just just talking about how that's unfolded this this week.
1: Yeah, I have a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, the church I attended when I lived in New York, um, they have ties to the young man before he moved to Dallas. There's there's actually videos of him out there. He was a singer, and so yeah, he would yeah I've seen them. Sing. Sing a lot of those familiar songs um, from the, from our, um, our, our 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 sort of faith background, the Church of Christ, and it was a it was a, it it was tough. It was just a tough thing, and sort of being familiar with the family and knowing sort of how the church folks think about these kinds of things. I thought it was a this is such a powerful moment for his brother to go and hug the. Um, to hug the uh, you know ex officer yeah who shot her brother, but it, it also wasn't surprising because that's how that's how it is. I think it, one of the difficult parts of it is that the church leadership itself um, really didn't have a whole lot to say about it, and it goes back to what we were saying before about how you know every black church grows through, even the most political black churches have this idea about. How political you should be or how, you know, how much you should focus the church's efforts and resources on the religion and the sort of the everyday operational, you know, the operation of the church, as opposed to if you should be civically engaged in this way. And I think it's caused a little bit of a split in terms of um when it first happened, there was really no mechanisms inside the church to deal with it. Yeah. But even now, I'm like, is are leaders going to come out with a statement or say anything? He mm. was just like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and this, it, I mean, at large, that was part of the difficulty in the AME church when it came to 2016, where there were people who wanted to focus on the everyday it's just what the church is there for. And the people who were young people in particular, I think it's a generational divide, I should say that, yeah. who want the church to be speaking out and to be um, active. And, you know, I think part of this conversation is about whether lots of these churches are going to be around in 100 years. Yeah, right. Um, because... It seems that the nexus of sort of black political life in America is in the street as it relates to what's happening with police, as it relates to what's happening with economic disparity um, and things like that. So just the fact that he was a faithful person and his brother even said, you know, my brother would, want, would have wanted her to give her a life to Christ. Yeah, that's that's difficult for a lot of young people to hear.
0: Yeah, yep. yep.
1: Um, but I think that I I knew that that how that was going to play out. Yeah, and I just think that um, there needs I hate to say I hate there's I hate to when people say there needs to be a national conversation about (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but I think that it needs to be
0: a national conversation.
1: Yeah, right. You know, like and and it's happening. People are. People are upset, yeah, and um, it sucks.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, I hate to say. It, I mean, it, it sucks, and um, the idea that faith faith is important to me, um, and I just think the idea that it's entered this conversation in a a, a terrible, terrible, terrible story where there was a conviction, yeah. you know. Yeah. And we're going to, we have to learn something from it or it's, you know, you don't want the kid to have sort of died in vain at such a young age, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just hard and hard things are hard. So, um,
0: I don't know if you saw the, I think there's so much going on here. Uh, uh, on one side, you know, as a, as a, as some, you know, faith is important to me. Uh, you know, I think the Christian call to forgiveness is potent, but then to see the Dallas police department sort of leverage that for their own sort of institutional advantage. I don't know if you saw this tweet that the, the Dallas police department put out yesterday that was basically like, you know, we should all, you know, following from the example of, uh, uh, of, it, you know his brother. We should, you know, move on and as together as a community. You know, signed Dallas PD. Uh, it, it just makes it very. It just makes it very difficult. It makes it very difficult to to be talking about one thing when you know that there are all these various interests that are going to try and manipulate it and and, yeah. and uh, use it for their their own purposes. Uh, I do think the other thing what you just laid out and this is something we talk about on this show pretty regularly which is democratic candidates who go to the black church uh thinking that the black church doesn't have any sort of it is not distinct from just a gathering of black voters you know that there are no ethics or or unique views about uh the role of politics uh, just face a, just face a rude, rude awakening. Uh, the, the candidates, and I would argue, you know, Barack Obama did this pretty well. The candidates who treat the black church distinctly and understand, uh, and give space for the black church to be the black church, as opposed to sort of just simply, um, seeing as a convenient sort of, uh, political venue. Uh, those are the candidates are going to, I think in the end do, do the best. I, I do think, you know, Cory Booker is is someone who understands that. I think Elizabeth Warren is someone who understands that. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have to see how, uh, especially as, you know, the race uh, hunkers down in South Carolina, uh, you know, what what distinctions arise on, on that front.
1: Yeah, what do you – last thing, I want to chime in on something you said, and I'm, I'm curious if you could expand on it too because I've been thinking about this, but I don't know how to – I don't know how to – how I should be thinking about this but it's like obviously it's a powerful moment when the kid's brother asks if he can hug this woman yeah and to me that is like obviously and I've heard people say that it's a personal decision for him and obviously unfortunately we're all going to move on from this story probably next week because it's just the nature of the yeah, news right. cycle and how we consume news and these sorts of events—it's just one it's part of the pace of an sort of internet-driven culture. But you know, when for for you to forgive someone for something so terrible, yeah. I feel like it's so powerful. Like those, the notion of forgiveness in that vein is so powerful that people are going to seize on it no matter what, right? Right. So you can't really. I was a little bit upset by people saying, well, sort of using it as a, I don't know how to say this, but like, obviously people took advantage and used were very self-interested in using that moment as a, for their own sort of benefit. Yeah. Um, but do you think that means that he, he shouldn't have done it?
0: No. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, that's not that's not where I land. Uh, and I think I think to sort of impose our sort of, you know, how does this affect the political outcomes? How does this affect the cultural right. conversations? Like like at the end of the day, this, this, this was about this young man has to live his life w- w- with this. And he could either li- live it feeling the, the burden of, of that contempt and and that inability to forgive or right. or he can do it and uh frankly I don't know if I'd have the fortitude and the frankly like the spiritual grounding to to do what what he did and you'd never want to impose that on somebody but this whole idea Darren that that it that it would have been better that that he was conceding something or that you know he'd been uh that he'd been sort of trained to express for I mean that's 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 uh, derisive pathologizing that should not be a part of this conversation in my my view. So uh, if if he would have walked out of that courtroom, you know, Shouting curse words at her, I, I wouldn't have, you know, you know be you. like, oh, I get it. You know, like, I'd be like, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Get it. Uh, but, but, you know, to, to me, and, and I understand this is absolutely a political case. that This, this is not, politics is not absent from this. But, right. uh, but to, Take what he did, and immediately go to well now you're just letting these folks off the hook and all it's like no, no one's being let you you think he's really his mother uh certainly didn't didn't leave anybody off the hook if you saw the press conference after um, I did. but um I, I i've just been i've just been disappointed, and now it's all becoming uh you know repetitive it, it's you know people are responding with the same talking points to this that they did after Charleston and it's like how about we just let let people respond how they need to respond and realize that this isn't new for him i mean yeah. i saw i saw a couple people responding uh you know on social media whatever uh you know how could he be you know how could he be expected to forgive r- right away and it's like for him it's not right away this this, this happened over a year ago it, 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 might, a while, yeah. it, it might seem fresh to you cuz the hashtag just popped up on trending topics, but for him, he's had to he's had to wrestle through. Well, what is this going to mean for my life for for the last year plus?
1: Um, yeah, it's difficult to live with anger.
0: Yes, and this is, I mean, just to take it back to Thurman. So Thurman in in Jesus and the Disinherited has this chapter on hate, and he he talks about. Uh, I'm not going to get the the um, the story exactly right, but but he was watching. Uh, two um, young black girls on the street and a a, a white person walked by and one of the black girls said to another uh, something like, you know, I I wish I wish he just fall down and crack his crack his head over the pavement. Uh, Like I'd love to see him crack his head over the pavement. And, And and Thurman said, you know, what what kind of horror house, like what kind of what kind of nightmarish conditions uh lead two precious little girls to, to uh to uh express contempt for someone in that way. And mm-hmm. he he of course goes on to describe like like exactly what those nightmarish conditions were. And he's not, he's not berating too, but, but he does say like that is a corrosive force on the heart that doesn't really hurt the white guy walking down the street, but it's going to be a pall over these young girls' lives if they don't find a way to deal with it and come to terms with, come to terms with it. So. I mean that's just it's it's one of the hardest things in, in life to deal with for those who have suffered for those who have things to forgive for those who you know for whom bitterness feels like the just thing and like the right
1: thing um, but I, and I I think too yeah. just that like hearing you talk I'm, I agree with every word that you said and I just think that even I you know I always try to go back to just the example of Jesus, right? And it's like, if you believe in that, whatever, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Christianity, like, whatever. But what happened in that period of time, mm. it was so powerful that it made a lot of people upset. Yeah, <laughs> right, yes. Just, <laughs> that's just the nature of... That's right, yeah. Forgiveness—it's the nature of grace. It's the nature of um, forgiving someone who's unforgivable. That's right. The nature of just—it's difficult. Yeah, and
0: like, like, that's right. why,
1: yeah. right. you know. Uh, so that's how I—that's how I make sense out of it. But it—it it, it is still upsetting. Uh, every part of it is upsetting. Um, yeah. Even the reaction, but right. And you're if you're you're in the forgiving business, you're in a you're in a volatile business. Amen. And
0: and I will say just to just to add one more thing, which is if you think forgiveness is powerful, then calling out like the 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 folks who are trying to. Misuse that as a way to get Themselves off the hook for what they need To do particularly yeah. with institutional Responsibility like if you're going to praise The forgiveness and, and talk about That then uh, that, Then you know it should It should doubly affect You that people are trying to marginalize Or sort of um, Undermine the forgiveness for the, for their Own purposes and that's yeah. why I just thought that Dallas PD tweet was 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 crazy Um yeah. Darren, I've, I've, I've kept you over. I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for the reporting you're doing. Would urge folks again to follow uh, Darren's reporting over at BuzzFeed. Uh, and we're, we're going to be paying close attention to you uh, throughout the year and into, into 2020, brother.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Darren. All right. Wasn't that just a, a great interview? It was uh, so many things that made me think and reconsider. Uh, especially, yeah, I'm so glad y'all got to hear that part of our conversation about the Harris campaign. Uh, because I think I've been pretty like firmly uh, on the record about the trajectory the Harris campaign has taken. Uh, but Darren has some really important reminders that we're, we're just in October, which I know I always say (laughs) Uh, it was important for me to, to hear someone else say it. And remember that we have, we have months to go before, before voting. And I do think where we ended up there that, you know, the important thing for Harris is be able to make it that far. Uh, and so that that was a tremendously interesting exchange and then uh, Darren's insight into the tension in the black church that uh, uh between sort of how how political uh should the church get and the fact that that's a discussion um and the fact that democratic politicians I think are less aware of the fact that that is a discussion than they have been Um, because instead of looking to the church for cues about black voters, several of the candidates seem to be taking the cues about black voters that they're getting from elsewhere and sort of imposing them on the black church. And that's just going to be a big distinction in this primary. And I think Darren's observation that there's a generational element here. Is critical because uh, it, it's not clear to me uh, that there's going to be a there. There might be a point in which I don't think we're there yet, but there's going to be a point at which Democratic candidates will uh, who take their cues from the Black Church will be less in tune with the with the general Black voter. I just don't think we're there yet. And I think we're going to see that unfold in South Carolina, and I'm thrilled that there are reporters like Darren who are attuned to these issues, who are doing actual reporting. Uh, we 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 had a little conversation uh, after we finished recording about distinctions between the Black Church. Uh, I mean, we we talked in the interview about the Black Church, and it's a it's a you know a way to open up the conversation. Uh, but uh, Darren's doing work that will. Uh, m- make clear that the black church is not a monolith and to then take that appreciation into the political realm and and help us uh, see the various slices of the black church that a democratic candidate has to be able to appeal to in order to be successful uh and so i'm just I'm just so glad we had Darren on the show. We might have to have him back once uh uh once we get deeper into this primary and and as a general uh heats up. Uh, uh, he he did uh, a lot of reporting around voting rights and black turnout turnout for the general in 2016. I know he's going to be following that closely. So again, thank you Darren for being on. All right, folks, that's the end of this episode. Uh, next episode will be uh providing analysis and catching you up after the next presidential debate on October 15th. So until then, this is Michael Ware, your host. You've been listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the AND Campaign. Learn more about the AND Campaign by visiting andcampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. Our guest this week was Darren Sands, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.